Eric had been a worrywart his entire life. He was laying there, rolling through everything, you know, overthinking. He didn't have the the emotional literacy to be able to be like, oh, yeah, these are anxious behaviors or I'm feeling anxious. All of a sudden, he was acting very differently and we had no idea why. He used to say to me all the time, like, I think you saved my life. I, I think I would not be here if it wasn't for us being together. I was just like, so taken aback by the deep level of pain that he was experiencing. That year of where these patterns were getting significantly worse, um, you know, we still didn't really know what the problem was, but you could tell, like, it felt like he was hiding something. Hey, how's it going? Eh, you know, it's going. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back. Uh, before we get started, we uh, we just want to say thank you to all those uh, of you who have been sharing um, positive feedback and, and who have been sharing your own experiences um, and how our podcast has been helping you in, in your own personal lives, maybe with dealing with your own things or even just helping others and your friends, family, whatever, with, with what they're dealing with. Um, it's been really cool to see some of the some of the feedback and, and, uh, and hear it. If you are more interested, we, we did make a post on our, uh, social media, uh, with, with some of that feedback, if you'd like to read through it. Yeah. It was, it's been super great just to see like the various ways that what we're talking about impacts people, because not everyone has gone through the death of somebody or loss or anything, you know, even close to what we've gone through, but, it's it's nice to hear that like the way that we're sharing our story is relatable to people regardless of their situation because i think there's some universal things that we talk about um you know with regards to just how we're feeling or how we were feeling how we have been dealing with things um you know that kind of you know uh resonates with people um regardless of the specific circumstance so that's been like super cool yeah, and also just um, it's been very enlightening uh, or very encouraging, I should say, for us to to continue as well because um, you know it may, it makes us both feel like we're we're actually having a positive impact and and um, and it's been very cool to hear hear how our story is is helping other people. Um, so keep it up, keep sharing that stuff with us. Um, Feel free to comment or leave a review with that as well if, if you're not afraid to be more public with it. But um, yeah, but we really appreciate it. it, it it's uh, it's really cool to hear hear everybody else. Experience it's, this. it's just good to know, because I mean, I think, you know, this has been something that you and I have wanted to do for a few years now. It's been a passion project of ours. And really, we have some, you know, ultimate messages and things that we feel are impactful from our perspective. And it's nice to hear that people are getting value out of it because uh, there's a lot of work that goes into putting a podcast together. And like, I don't know that you necessarily realize like how many moving parts there are to it. And obviously like we're not, we're self-producing this. It's not like we have like somebody doing this podcast for us and we just show up 
um, as talent, which I would love, by the way, just to show up and be the talent. But <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the busiest I've ever been in my entire life <laughs> the last couple of months doing this. Yeah. And it's important for us that the quality is good. And so to know that people are noticing that, that they're, you know, appreciating and can tell that we've put a lot of effort into this. And on top of the fact that like, we're really just being ourselves, like the people who know us really well are used to us being this way, but we're very comfortable talking about some of these subjects. um, And the fact that we now have the ability in this day and age to do it in such a public way, but still really connect to people, you guys, like in a more intimate way, it, it really is just, it's a super cool like thing to be able to do. Well, and also hearing from people that like, maybe I don't, that I'm not so close to being, um, being very positive about it and like coming up to me and being like, Oh, Hey, I listened to your, your podcast and, and it's really good. And, um, that stuff is, uh, is very cool to hear. Cause again, it's, it's very encouraging. Um, having put in a lot of effort to this stuff, uh, knowing that, that even people that, you know, I'm not super close to are, are listening and, and resonating with it, you know? Yeah. It's been awesome. We've, it's been great to get that feedback. So what are we diving into? I mean, I know we kind of left, uh, things in our last episode, we talked a lot about who Eric was and everything that we loved about him and what type of person he was. So, uh, what's, what's next? Like, what happened? What, how, how do we continue that conversation to sort of tell the progression of, of things that happened leading up to his death? Well, I think, uh, I think kind of at this point, you know, about, about a year before he died, he, he really started, um, I, I would say demonstrating his struggles with, with more of the mental health side of things. Um, he had a few other things going on as well that like kind of, uh, kind of throughout the entirety of, of my life, or at least knowing him, um, that popped up here and there. Um, namely, I, I would say one of the biggest issues that kind of, uh, probably contributed to, to the way things went down is he, he had this, uh, he had like insomnia, like a sleep issue. Um, and for a very long time, we didn't really know what it was, but, um, I think we can kind of start off with, with talking about that and like our yeah. experiences with that. Um, I think the first thing to note is that as we talked about and, and touched on a little bit in the last episode is your dad, to us, it was very clear that he struggled with anxiety and he has, I think pretty much the entire time I know him or have known him and, the interesting thing about the anxiety is that um i truly again hindsight 2020 looking back at it, it you know when someone like that dies and and it's out of the blue and you know tragic and sudden um there's really like you just want as many answers to things as possible to try to piece together like how did it get to like, how did this happen? Right. Because I will say that his death, uh, you know, was accidental, but it could have been prevented. I think potentially I, you know, you just don't know for sure. But I think that like, you know, when you're trying to figure out the answers and especially at this particular time, 
you know, in the process after losing him is we still didn't have answers. Like we didn't have answers. So you're trying to figure out, you know, and you, you start to become kind of a detective. And I think that sometimes people get dismissive about the need for answers. Like maybe you don't want to know that stuff. Maybe it, it's too hard to go deep into that. And I mean, maybe it is for some people, but I know for me and even for you, like there was a driving force to need to understand what happened Well, cause, um, cause to be able every, to really. I think the important thing for us too is, is everything went downhill so fast um, with him. And then all of a sudden it was over and it was like, uh, you know, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we, we were, it was, it was a huge whirlwind for us, the whole process. And then we were left to pick up the pieces and, and, uh, you know, obviously hindsight is 2020, but like, but we didn't, we didn't know exactly what happened. And then, and then, yeah, there, I think there are a lot of people who think that looking for answers is going to be too painful. And so they just let it go. And th- and that's fine for some people, but for us, it was, um, it was, it was too confusing and too painful to not know. Like, yeah. You know, and then especially, especially because everyone else was also looking for answers and it's, it it was such a mystery at the time. People don't just like, it's not a common thing for a 38 year old person to just die in a hotel room alone. Like, and not, and not um, something easily explainable, like a heart attack. Exactly. You know, it it was, it was, it was such a, a mystery. Like we've talked about, you know, kind of extensively. So getting back into kind of the progression of things. So let's go back to the anxiety piece. The inside running joke in our family, and I'm talking our family, like our family, like immediate family, but then also like Eric's family, was that Eric had been a worrywart his entire life. Like Mm -hmm. that was a term that was often thrown around with your dad um and even even you know, thrown around with me because i kind of took took after him you kind of have taken on some ways. of those yeah and so um and i think that's important to note because obviously before his death we found out he was struggling with pretty bad anxiety like and we always saw it like i from the beginning when i was dating him all of that things I saw that he was struggling with anxiety. I recognized it because I grew up in a household where there were a lot of mental health issues, a lot of, um, there were substance use issues, you know, uh, when, when, when I got a little bit older and my siblings were a little bit older, there were, you know, bipolar, you know, severe depression, suicidal ideation, you know, like, various things um, where I had a lot of exposure to mental health and the struggles that come with it. And so, but on the flip side, your dad did not necessarily have a lot of exposure to that. And, but he was a person that constantly worried. And, you know, again, from a very young age, his mom was like, yeah, he's my little worry wart. Um, And I think that like, Throughout the years, even from when I first was together with him all the way until he wasn't here anymore, we both had noticed over time, we recognized when he was super anxious. There were physical 
tells that he had that indicated he was anxious. There was a palpable ener- he energy. He was a fidgeter for one thing. That was one thing that I remember always noticing. Is he, he was what? A fidgeter. Oh, fidgeter. Yeah, yeah. he so fidgeted he, a ton. He, he would, you know, bounce his leg uh, no matter any time he was sitting. Uh, he would he would play with like bed sheets or like you know pillowcase or uh, you know he would play with his pant leg. Um, it's almost know. like a self soothing mechanism, right? I mean, a, a lot of fidgeting is that it's it's some sort of like self soothing, yeah. mind calming type thing. But he was it was constant for him. It, I don't think lo- thinking back to it, I don't think he was ever not fidgeting with something. No. You know, yeah, and I think that's important because. Again, we learn later that he had severe social anxiety. Um, But even though I recognized it, and even sometimes you recognized it, again, we've mentioned he's so extremely stubborn, so stubborn, and also kind of grew up with this mentality that, like, you know, back in that day, if you think about when we were younger, teenage era, early 20s, was like late 90s, early 2000s. And so there still was a lot of stigma around mental health, a lot of misunderstanding around depression, anxiety, all of those things. And so there was this pervasive attitude in general that like, it's all in your head. It's kind of just baloney, you know, like it's not, um, it's not real. So you combine that mentality of him thinking that way with the fact that like this has literally been like embedded in his personality since he was a very young child i don't even like he just really did not correlate his fidgets and his tells and like when we could tell us ang- anxious with actually being ang- anxious he didn't have the the emotional literacy to be able to be like oh yeah these are anxious behaviors or i'm feeling anxious to communicate that and it just was his normal so like yeah. he didn't see it as anything different yeah i was gonna say it's it was uh it was such a normal thing for him to be feeling that way all the time that like when you would point it out he'd just be like what are you talking about you know you, you could you could feel his anxiety i think i said this in the last episode but you could feel his anxiety from um from across the room and you'd be like what you know what's on your mind? Why are you so anxious? And he'd get defensive, almost like I'm. What are you? He'd talking get about? so like, upset about it. Well, and and I think he also kind of had this mindset. Um, I think on some level of like the man up mindset, where it, you know, especially with mental health, it's like you just man up and you deal with it. And mental health, you know, is not that huge of a deal. It's all in your head. You can fix it on your own. You know, you just got to man up and get over it and and do what you have to do. And that's obviously not the case. I mean, both clinically and also just like. I think now society has started to come around on that idea that that, you know, you can't just get when you have mental health issues, uh, even something that seems more simple, like anxiety or depression, you can't just get over it. Um, but that was kind of his mindset is that he could just fix it himself, that he would just get over it, um, or that he, you know, that he just had to do what he had to do. Um, and he was very stubborn. I think also it's, yeah, I think it's important to note too, that like he didn't grow, you know, we, and I, when I say we, I was probably more the driving force in this around really focusing on 
teaching you emotional literacy and awareness around mental health. Well, and just being able to like understand what feelings are what, right? Like being able to label them um, because of my past experience with my upbringing. So then you reverse that on his side, his upbringing, you know, there wasn't a comfort of openly talking about feelings. Um, and they, you know, I adore our family. Like the one thing that I've been so appreciative and thankful for is the fact that like, they're my family, your dad's family. Like that hasn't changed since he passed away. And given a very close relationship with a lot of them, given the, given the, the, challenges that I have with my own family of origin relationships and, you know, the toxicity that's there, that family piece is so incredibly important for me. And so, um, they are like the best people. And at the same time, talking about how they felt like they were not like super touchy feely, you know, openly emotional, uh, and it's not that they didn't feel emotions, but it was just they had a tendency a lot of times to just sort of be like, mm, like, I'm just I'm fine. And we stuff it down and we don't really talk about it. And so you got to remember your dad grew up in that environment as well. So, you know, uh, he did have that habit of sort of dismissing how he was feeling, probably not knowing how to connect to and relate the fact that he was feeling anxious and then also having his own biases and stigmas against mental health as a a male who grows up in our culture, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he definitely, he put, he put a lot of pressure on himself, I think, uh, to, you know, to be the man of the house, to provide to, you know, that, 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 you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think he put it on himself so much that he never, he was embarrassed or didn't want to disappoint us um, when he did have faults or when he did have shortcomings or, or maybe he thought that admitting um, that he had these issues or, or confronting it would mean that he was weak in some way. Um, And I think that that kind of mentality pervaded his mind uh, into being stubborn about it and not really allowing anyone to in on his feelings. Yeah. And I'm sure like everyone it it's not comfortable to be vulnerable like that you you know to open yourself up to that and again you got to think about initially you know the time period that we lived in we're in a better space where there's more understanding of mental health today there's still a lot of work to do around building awareness but you know especially in that time frame you know, there still was a lot of open, very open bias and stigma against depression, anxiety, you know, et cetera. And your dad had that, that his, you know, that bias and stigma for himself as well. Uh, And I think, I think even in today's society, there's there, I mean, especially working in the ER, we're kind of frontline workers on the mental health crisis that's been happening over the last I would say since COVID, it's gotten exponentially worse, but, but like, hundred uh, oh, and I think everybody's begun to realize how, how big of a problem it is, uh, when you, when you do have 
mental health issues and how common it has become to, you know, face things like anxiety and depression. And, and those things uh, for many people become killers. Like they become, they are an illness just like any other physical ailment. Uh, they can kill you, um, you know, in many, in many different ways. Yeah. I think that's part of why it's been, why we really want to take you through this story because I think that it would have, it was very easy to miss, obviously, like what, what was going on with him, which is what we'll get into. Um, even despite being a household who that was what I would say typically more aware of mental health than probably the average household at that particular time. Well, and, um, and I, being as close as we were and as open with each other as we typically were, um, you know, and we knew he had these problems, but I, I don't think either of, you, uh, either of us really knew to, to what extent they, um, they were for, he, he was very good at, at hiding his emotions on that front. Um, you know, when he was. And and let's not forget, like, it wasn't, he wasn't, like, disconnected or hiding. He was, like, in terms of our relationship together, he, and even with you, like, he was vulnerable. He would talk about how he felt around other things. He was, you know, we all had really good communication and his and I's relationship was really close and connected emotionally except for when it came to discussion of anything related to mental health so it was like it was like negative any any negative feelings that he had um about himself or his life or you know his anxieties about he just where things were going he would just put it in a box shut it down um yep you know so so he had he had that kind of predisposition already and as mm-hmm. I kind of mentioned earlier, we can get into the the sleep issues that he had. So, so when yeah. he was so prior to his death, he he actually finally did do a sleep study, and he fought us on this for a very very long time. But yeah, what were, I mean, what were the results of of that again? Well, let's back up a little bit too. So, from the time I met him, he very period periodically would have these episodes. Um, where it seemed like he all of a sudden would be it would like like he was under the influence of something like he would get stumbly and he would you know slur his words and be kind of discord like not coordinated um and really just like you you'd be like, you need to go to sleep or something. Like it just, he, it almost honestly like, and it wasn't super bad when we first got married. It just happened once in a great blue moon. Um, But it, you know, kind of progressively sort of very slowly got more uh, frequent. And it, the best way I can explain it is like, he'd be fine one minute. And then it seemed like he was high as a kite, like the next minute. And, um, And I was really paying attention because, again, like the thing about Eric and his family uh, as a whole is that they just happen to be 
of the genetics that have a really high tolerance to alcohol. Um, and sometimes I would notice that like if he'd had a drink or two, that would happen. But it was really hard for me to figure out like what was actually going on if it was related to the alcohol or not related to alcohol, because it would happen where he was only drinking like one or two beverages, which from someone who has an extremely high tolerance wasn't something that should make him seem like he's extremely intoxicated. And then I think the other thing that's important to know is I was not a naive person. I was very well aware of the fact that people hide things, you know, if they're using substances outside of that, that that happens. Um, But like we shared all of our finances, like, and I was the person that managed our finances, you know, we were open with each other. I like it, there was never a thing of being secretive or weird with like passwords or things like that. Like, I mean, I just, if I needed to get in his computer, I'd go into his computer. If he needed to get in, if his phone was there and I like didn't have my phone, I'd be like, Hey, let me use your phone. I mean, like there, that was the level of trust that we had with each other. So like, it's not that it didn't cross my mind at times when that happened. Like, is there something else going on there? But there was no evidence of that. And it absolutely wasn't. And then the thing that really started to make it worse was that it was starting to happen with no alcohol at all. So like, I kind of started, I kind of chalked it up to like, oh, he must just be overtired. And then if he has like a beer or two, that seemed to be like when, when it would happen. So like, he just needs to go to bed. And, you know, I didn't really notice his, his episodes, uh, until I would say I was, I was more of a, a teenager, but, um, you know, I, I always remember he would, well, first of all, kind of the, the thing that pointed us to really realizing that it was a sleep issue more than anything was there was one night I, I must've been 10, 11 years old or something like that. And we yeah, had, a, we I, you had probably were closer to 12 cause we, yeah. we moved not too long after that. We, I remember we had a bunch of people over. We were all hanging out. Um, nobody was really, nobody was drinking or anything like that. And there wasn't remember, a bunch. It was actually just our one good friend that lived close to us and the kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's still like four or five people, <laughs> three, four, three, four people. Um, but I remember he, he, and when he had these episodes, and when you say that he was like high or, or he would act like he was high or intoxicated, it was literally he would start slurring his words. He would start stumbling around. He would oftentimes get like extra affectionate or um, just kind of like unusual, unusual behavior. Or uh, a- extra affectionate or the flip side would be he'd get irritable and he would like try to start arguments or things like that. So it was like one or the other. Yeah. And, and on this night, I, you know, I remember he, it was almost like a, like, like a flip of a switch. We knew he hadn't been And drinking. he wasn't drinking at all. Yeah. yeah. We, well, we were all like, together. Like we knew he hadn't had yeah. anything to drink. We knew he hadn't had anything else. And he, you know, all of a sudden he was talking weird, like slurring his words. And he got up to go to the bathroom and he kind of like stumbled down the hallway and he was just acting differently out of nowhere. And all of us noticed it, including 
you know, our, your friends who were there. Our friends. Yeah. Um, and I remember you kind of, you made him go to the hospital because you're like, did you take anything? Did you drink anything? And he was like, no. And, and mind you, I was 12. I had no idea what was going on, but I remember sitting in the hospital and, you know, doing all those tests and, um, you know, well, and kinda... let, let me back up to you is that I had been trying to explain to him up to that point that this stuff was happening and he was just like, nope, like you're just you you're know, making, making it, it an issue. It's not a thing. And it was something that was really frustrating for me. And when that happened and it was like, literally he hadn't had a beer or any sort of cocktail at all. In the flip of a switch, he was sitting next to me one minute. He was fine. The next minute, you would have thought that he was high as a kite or, you know, was extremely intoxicated. And like you said, our good friend noticed that and, you know, was like, what is going on? And I'm just like, something is not right. And this is scary. And like, you know, he was stumbling around and it was a fight to get him to go to the ER. So again, stubborn man does not want to go to the doctor, doesn't think that what we're seeing in his behavior is actually happening. So he thinks that he's fine and we're just exaggerating or blowing making it, it a big deal. Yeah. And so it was an extreme fight to get him to go to the ER. Um, but somehow I was able to convince him to go. And even when we got to the ER, now I was going to, you know, I, I was 99% confident that he had not ingested anything or drink anything or, you know, I, I was, that was part of what was so concerning for me. And it's like, but, is he having a stroke? Right. Um, but I wasn't naive enough at that point to think that he couldn't have been having those things going on. I went into that doctor's visit into the ER being like, maybe he is doing something and I just am not aware of it because to be, you'd be naive to think that someone couldn't hide that from you. Right. Well, and, 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 um, even, and now like looking back, right. It, you know, from a medical perspective, you know, it essentially was, he he had an altered mental status and that can, you know, as a nurse, that can mean a million different things that can mean they ingested something mm -hmm. or, you know, they have some sort of toxic chemical in their system or they have, they're having a stroke or they're having, you know, micro seizures or like there's a million different things that can called cause that sort of altered mental status. And some of them are emergencies. And this was something that in the, especially in this moment when we were, when all of us had witnessed his sudden change in behavior was very, mm -hmm. very concerning because it was like, it was. it was like all of a sudden he was acting very differently and we had no idea why. And he had no idea why. And he didn't even think it was happening, which is another thing that's concerning. Right. And I think, and then when we got to the hospital and explained what was going on, even the doctors and the nurses were like, are you sure you didn't drink anything? Are you sure you didn't take anything? Like, you know, again, in the ER, just to make it clear for people and the hospital in general, we don't have judgment around what you're taking, not taking, how much substance you have on board. We're not the cops. If, it, if you're, 
we're not the, and you're not, yes, we're not calling the police. You're not going to get in trouble. It, there's a protection in the law that prevents us from being able to do that in the first place, unless there's some sort of harm or crime or, you know, whatever. But like, it's almost a, a, a non, it's such a rare circumstance where we would, we would have to contact the police for anything. So when you come to the ER, uh, we often get a lot of people who might have taken substances or have drank excessively and their, you know, thought processes, I'm going to just deny that I did, or I'm going to, you know, downplay what I took because there's fear of judgment, there's fear of stigma, there's fear of getting in trouble. And, you know, I think it's important to clarify just now that we actually are healthcare providers that work in the ER, there is no judgment. You aren't going to get in trouble. We by law cannot, you know, tell the police that you're about your medical history. But it's we our job to know it's to our be job able to rule out everything and we have to know mm-hmm. those things in order to do our job effectively cuz especially in the emergency room, you know, doctors and nurses, you're investigators and you have to there's there's a million different things that something like that could be and you have to, right. to rule everything out. It's not trying to figure out what it is, you're trying to figure out what it is at most of the time. Yeah. And unfortunately, this still happens and this is what happened I think when we went to the ER with your dad that time is that the stigma still is exist in people's heads and the judgment and as much as you know we should not be making judgments in that way in our profession it does still happen um and so you know that's exactly what happened when we brought Eric to the ER this particular time is they took one look at him stumbling, slurring, you know, all this stuff. And they didn't believe they, they were just like, dude, you had like, just tell us your, you know, they were like, you had to have taken something. They're talking to me and sort of like, Oh my goodness, you gotta be like the stupidest person ever. Like clearly he's using something. And I kept saying like, I'm not naive. I had, family members who are dealing with this issue. So like, I'm not naive. I'm not saying that it couldn't be possible, but I'm pretty confident that there is nothing in his system that is causing this. And they did, you know, blood work and it was all negative. There was nothing in there. So, you know, validating, um, on one hand. And then what the ER doctor said that was made so much sense is he said, I think, he was asking him about his sleep patterns and we had started to talk about again, as long as I've known Eric, he really has struggled with sleep and I have always noticed it to correlate with his anxiety. It was almost like he couldn't shut his brain off to the point that like there were times that I would wake up in the middle of the night because I could sense his brain just going and like, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly sensitive to that as it is, but like, there's times where I just would be like, what is going on? Because I could feel like his anxiety and his brain just nonstop. He was, he was laying there rolling through everything, you know, overthinking over and over and over again. And over the years, even prior to like recognizing or finding out that he had insomnia and all of that, like I was constantly trying to get him to see a doctor to even just try and 
you know, try a, some sort of anti-anxietic type medication because, you know, I also at certain points in my time dealt with really bad panic attacks and some anxiety and had taken some medications off and on and realized the benefit of them and like the fact that they did help. But again, you know, stubborn man to a T doesn't want that label and stigma and doesn't think that he needs it. And so there's times that, you know, when they said like, so basically what the ER doctor said is that based on his symptoms, they were pretty confident that he had um, sleep deprivation. So, and uh, like severe sleep deprivation. And they're basically like, it's related to insomnia. We really highly recommend you get a sleep study because when you have sleep deprivation, it literally puts you into a state of your body being almost in a state of intoxication, which is why it's super dangerous for people to drive when they're deprived of sleep. They they say that uh, sleep deprivation is actually much more dangerous than driving intoxicated. Mm -hmm. Because especially if you're on the verge of falling asleep, first of all, most of the time when you're sleep deprived, you know, you can, you can very easily fall asleep at the wheel, but, but also like you do sometimes act like you're intoxicated when you're very tired. Mm Mm-hmm. So when the doctor said that, it was validating for me because I was like, okay, I'm not like just making this up in my head. There's a reason that he's behaving this way. And then, you know, again, my brain is like, okay, we just get a sleep study. Right. We just get a sleep study. Let's figure it out. Well, of course, it's your dad, so you think a sleep study happened. And this was probably in, like, 2012. And let's just be clear that, like, I had been on him for years before that because I knew something was wrong. Like, we need to go to the doctor. You need to get this checked out. Like, this is not normal. This is what happening. And he would just kind of do the whole, you know. It's not that big it's of a fine. deal. It's fine. You know, it what portion. Yeah, that, yep. And so it was validating to have that, but. Do you think that we had any luck at all getting him to decide to go to the doctor and do a sleep study? Absolutely not. Well, like I said, it wasn't until only a few months before he died that he finally went and got a sleep study. And and that was such a fight. It was so it still was hard to get him to that point. And, uh, but it had progressively gotten worse over the years and it got really bad the summer before he died well like like i said that that was the you know the first time i really noticed it was that night when we took him to the emergency room and then i Mm -hmm. remember like i don't think i really noticed it much after that until um until we had moved and we moved down um you know a couple hours away and um i remember nice when he would come downstairs you know and he would act like that. And it got to the point, you know, especially a year, year and a half before he died, these events, these uh, episodes would happen so frequently that you and I just got to a point where we'd be like, you're tired, go to bed. Because like, um, because he would suddenly start slurring his words and being, you know, acting intoxicated. And like you said, sometimes he'd get irritable and start, you know, almost picking fights or, on the flip side, he'd get extra affectionate and like, like in a way it was, it was 
you know, nice and it's endearing. It's like that sometimes, annoying level. Right. Sometimes yeah. it was nice and endearing, but then sometimes it's like if you're busy and you're doing something and he and he it basically like you turn into a dog who just wouldn't let up on getting attention, you know? Like yeah. <laughs> like you know when a, when a dog comes up to you and just like has to be on your lap and they won't accept anything otherwise that that's the level yeah. of like attention seeking that he would he would be like in that state sometimes and so i'm very would, affectionate and needed yeah. a lot of attention and yeah and, yeah you know but but he would do that all while slurring his words and stumbling around and you and i both got very attuned to that episode and so you and i mm-hmm. would, got to a point where we would never we wouldn't put up with it anymore and we would just be like you're tired go to bed you need to go to sleep and, and yeah, eventually, literally, he got, eventually he got to the point where he would just listen to us. And he'd be like, okay. And then he would go. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it got to a point where I literally would just be like, because he would also get distracted. It's like, he'd be like, okay, I should go to bed. And then, you know. And then he'd wander get around distracted the house for 30 again. minutes going and doing random stuff. And probably being anxious and whatever. So there'd be times where I literally would be like grabbing him and being like, you need to go to bed. And this is. The other thing that was really interesting is that there were times, so like when he did actually fall asleep, remember at some point earlier in the episodes, we talked about how we used to joke that if we ever had a fire or something of that nature, like Eric was out. Once once he was asleep, he was, he was out, out. He slept so hard to the point that if you tried to wake him up in that type of sleep, it's like he, when he finally would go into that deep, like REM sleep, he would wake up and like be super confused and have no idea what was going on. Oh, yeah. um, I remember, I remember like, out of a dead sleep full on jumping on him at times and he still wouldn't wake up trying to like, Hey, you need to get up and mm-hmm. do something or whatever. Like he'd go take a nap and you could not wake him from that nap. You know, no. I'd be, I'd be so physically he... shaking him like, Hey, I need you for something. And he would, he would be like, you know, you would not, not wake up whatsoever. Yeah. And I think, um, so he, we finally got him to do the sleep study And there was part of me that thought maybe he had sleep apnea because there were times that he would be snoring and sort of like, well, he was stop breathing. He snored really loud. Right. And that was another issue that we had (laughs) because we would always hate him. He was snoring. (laughs) (laughs) And when he would sleep next to me, you know, I'm fine. Like if I fall asleep first, I don't have an issue. It doesn't wake me up. I'm a hard sleeper as well. But if I was like not falling asleep first and he was snoring, then it was annoying. And then it also, I would notice like the pauses in his breathing, which is very common with sleep apnea. So I was kind of thinking it was probably sleep apnea. Um, But when he finally went to the sleep study and got it done, really, they actually said that he didn't really, he didn't have sleep apnea. He did, he wasn't having um, enough of those types of apneic episodes to classify him as sleep apnea. What the problem was is that in the six hours that he did the sleep study where he was actually sleeping, his brain woke up like woke up like as in had activity um, when it should have been in the resting state like a hundred times within an hour or something like that. So you think about that. And like in the in the sleep cycle, like I don't know if a lot of people know how that works, but usually each sleep cycle is about ninety minutes, and you kind of go through waves, and you yep. go through you know a, a wave of really really deep sleep, and then and then as you're 
coming out of it, you go into REM sleep, which is like a lot of your, your processing throughout the night goes to that where you, you dream mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, rapid eye movement. Um, and that's when you're, it's a lot lighter of a sleep. And, um, and he, I'm all, I, you can kind of explain it from there, but like in the way that he woke up, he almost never really went into the deep sleep part of it. Oh no. And how would he, because if his brain was literally waking up a hundred times, close to a hundred times an hour, he never reached a 90 minute period of, I mean, like where was he able to get into that deep sleep? It wasn't happening. And that deep sleep is where your body recharges in general. And so like that's, that's sleep. That's actual sleep. So of course with that level of insomnia, he never really, he, he, he essentially never really slept ever. No, even when he, even though and his body was asleep and you couldn't wake him up, his brain never actually rested. And I'm sure right. part of that was related to anxiety. Absolutely. I 100% am confident that it was related to his anxiety to the point where then when we had the results of his sleep study, I was just like, you need to go to a doctor and get on some anti-anxiety meds because clearly this is what's getting in the way of your sleeping and, you know, And again, you got to remember, like, he was having these episodes and they were getting more frequent, you know, in like 2016, 2017, but especially 2017, like about eight or nine months before he died, they just started getting really, really bad. It was almost like every other day, you know, that he was having these types of episodes. And, um, you know, like I said- And he drove for his job. He drove, like- traveled quite extensively well and so when we we heard the news that he you know that something had happened initially like on that day that we found out that he died when we first heard the news you know the first thought i think for both of us was like did he get in a car accident you know Mm -hmm. um because again he traveled and he drove and you know but like i said before he died he uh we didn't find out like the again the actual answer as to what the sleep issue was until like right before he died so those that year of where these patterns were getting significantly worse, um, you know, we still didn't really know what the problem was. And we kept trying to get him in to go to the doctor to, to get it figured out. And he still was stubborn about it. He still was, you oh, know, was yeah. saying, you know, we're, we're blowing out a proportion or we're making it up or, you know, we're it's not that big of a deal. And- they did at the sleep center, like they did the study, they told them what was going on. They themselves said, you know, you probably need to be on some sort of anti-anxiety med. And then you also should probably see like a sleep therapist, which they kind of work with you to train you how to get into a better sleep pattern. And he just didn't want to do all of that, you know, so we had answers, but no plan to try to address it which was a little bit frustrating i think his mentality from that too was a lot of like i've gotten this far in life without it like i don't need it now and it's like well Mm -hmm. it's been getting much much worse though so you should you know this is the point where you do need it because it's it's continuing to put you down a bad path and i think i think it was kind of a a, you know double-edged sword because that year before he died 
you know, we've kind of discussed this, his mental health basically went down the toilet, but also he started having more and more of these episodes where he was Mm -hmm. essentially physically displaying his lack of sleep. So sleep was getting worse. His mental health was declining. And then, well, and you know, let's talk about like the mental health part of it. So not only did we know, obviously that he had some sort of anxiety issue, but, um, he started displaying signs of getting into like a pretty deep depression about a year and a half before he died. But again, I didn't necessarily recognize what it was or what was happening until, you know, probably closer to, it probably took about six months of him displaying symptoms of being, you know, pretty depressed actually. Um, before it really clicked with me, like, I think he's depressed. Um, and, you know, and you got to remember that, like, when he was a teenager, he did struggle with some depression. And um, there, one of the things he shared with me right after we started dating, um, around the time we got engaged, is that right prior to us starting to date, he was actually suicidal um, in that he attempted, um, you know, uh, at, you know, he, he would have been like 18, 19 years old. And I do think that, uh, you know, that's like I said before, he used to say to me all the time, like, I think you saved my life. I, I think I would not be here if it wasn't for us being together. And so I do think, and he never, other than the anxiety, he never had any issues or observable issues anyways with like a depression. Not saying that he didn't have depression. He could have because now we know that there are high functioning people who have depression too, that it can be hard to spot. But he didn't display any overt symptoms of depression throughout our entire marriage. And you got to remember, we'd been together 20 years at the point that he had died And so that year prior, it took me a hot minute to figure out he's really depressed um, because it was very gradual in how it developed. And again, you know, as we mentioned, I was really busy with nursing school. We I had some family stuff going on. So there was a year in that the year kind of. I would say probably the end of the year where he started to show signs of having depression was the end of, I had taken my nephew in who was 15 at the time and essentially was like foster care type thing with him. Mm -hmm. And that was its own, you know, challenging experience at the time. So I was in nursing school and I was very distracted with that situation. And so, you know, I think that's about the time when towards the end of that is when he started to develop depression symptoms, but it took me like six months after that to really notice that like, I think he's severely depressed and it it was to the point where he got so like, I could tell something was wrong. So like, I think the other kind of misunderstanding that sometimes people have around this stuff is like, despite outside of like talking about mental health specifically or like anxiety or any of those things that come with that, he was a very communicative and we had a nice, very close emotionally 
connected relationship. And there was a period of time the summer before he died where it was starting to get so bad that I noticed that something was really wrong and I couldn't figure out what was going on with him. Um, to the point that like he started to completely emotionally disconnect from me and I could feel that wall that had just all of a sudden come up. And I remember where it didn't matter how much I was trying to figure out what was going on with him, how much I was trying to, you know, open him up to talking to me about it. Cause it's, again, it's not like we didn't talk about stuff in our marriage. I mean, we, we were, we were tight, you know? Um, and all of a sudden he just shut me out. And I remember, you know, around that time I was in school, um, and just stressed out with my family situation, all this stuff. And I'd put on a little bit of weight. And so start, I'm starting to think like, is he just like not attracted to me anymore? Like things like he was, his libido started to get lower. Like, um, again, classic signs of depression, Um, but like all of a sudden he just like was not interested in sex and, and he wasn't like communicating how he felt about it probably because he didn't know how to articulate it or what to say or how to explain it. But I'm feeling emotionally shut out and he's all of a sudden not interested in, you know, really having sex or doing anything like that. And I had, you know, gained a little weight. So I'm starting to think like, is it me? Is he just like not attracted? Is it not? Are we just, you know, what's going on? Is he having an affair? Like I couldn't figure out what was going on. But and I do remember also, one specific. I was going to oh, say, um, you know, he, he also just started behaving differently in general. Like I, you know, I would say it really got noticeable kind of towards the end of that summer, uh, you know, the year before he died. Where mm-hmm. even like, you know, we had a boat, we enjoyed doing things outside and like, you know, together and even his relationship with me. Granted, I was a teenager. I was really busy between school and work and friends and all that stuff. Like I was kind of at that stage of my life where I was a lot more, I would say, disconnected from both of you guys. But even I noticed that he, when I wanted to do things with him, which he normally was very much all for, he, he was very much, he had way way less energy and um, was much less interested in the things that he normally would have loved to go do with me or with anybody else. Well, and and mind you, he also around that, you know, a few years prior to that, um, you know, had kind of lost a lot of his friends um, through various reasons, but uh, he, he, he didn't really have any friends. And then uh, again, that he used to have. He used to be very close with a few different people. And then um, for various reasons, he wasn't anymore. And then um, it had had nothing to do with him. No. And and he had this kind of social anxiety point where he never really wanted to make friends anymore. And so I think that also, um, you know, potentially contributed in that he had no, he, he, he just, he never went out and did anything anymore. He had no friends to go do anything with. Even with us, he he stopped wanting to do things with us, and and um, he was isolating. I he mean, was, very he was isolating signs of depression. He was isolating not only from the world, but he was isolating from his family in emotional ways mm-hmm. and just f- even physically. Like he he didn't want to he didn't want to hang out with me. He didn't want to hang out with you. He didn't you know he was he was in his own little he was in his own mental state. 
he was clearly suffering with something and something was up and something we just was wrong. could not, we could not figure it out. And there's one thing that really stands out uh, in experience around that time where again, I was trying to press him and be like, what's going on with you? Like, I'm just, you know, I'm worried about you and, and we know these things are going on. And I remember, you know, hugging him and just sort of being, cause we we're laying in bed and I'm just like, what's wrong? Like what's, I, I, I can tell that something's not right. And he just broke down sobbing, just sobbing. Um, and he was talking about how he hated his life and he was like, I feel so bad saying that to you because it doesn't have anything to do with you or Isaac. Like I adore you and I, you guys are the best part of my life, but I absolutely hate my life outside of it. And I'm so unhappy. And he just was so sad and I've never seen him cry like that. And, you know, again, as the story continues to unfold, it was a little bit of foreshadowing and it makes sense when we start to figure out what actually was going on. But I was just like, so taken aback by the deep level of pain that he was experiencing. And then I just wish that I wish that at that point he would have felt he could continue to have that discussion with me and us kind of work together to figure out how to make him feel better. But even though he had that breakdown, he still just shut me out after that. Um, and, well, and, and yeah, he, I mean, even, you know, in, in terms of what you've, you've talked about that breakdown with me, you know, a, a few different times and, um, one of the things that I've gathered from it too, and from what I remember around that time is he had that, that breakdown. And so you were very aware that he, you know, that was kind of the moment that you became very obviously aware that he was super depressed. He was very poignant about the point that he was just unhappy and it had nothing to do with us, but you, you were trying very hard to help him. And he, he still was very stubborn about not, um, not allowing that or, or, you know, not doing anything about it for some reason, like he could fix it on his own. Yeah. Yeah. It was a hard space to be in at that time as someone who really loved and cared about him. Um, and that also, again, was when I really started to, I was aware of the fact that he was struggling with this stuff, but also I, like I mentioned in the last episode, I, also was so tied up with what I needed to focus on in order to like, it was like, I just need to get this stuff done. And then I knew how stubborn he was. So it was just sort of like, okay, now I know what the issue is. I know what's causing, you know, these challenges between the insomnia and the, you know, severe depression. That was probably the case. And then the fact that he had anxiety, I was like, I knew what was going on at that point. And like I said, in the last episode, it, that's when I sort of said, okay, I'm not going to be able to get him into the doctor at this point because he's it's going to take a lot of mental energy and effort on my part to convince him to go because he was so stubborn. So I'm going to table this. I know he's not doing well at the moment, but I don't have very long. 
to just finish this out and then I can solely focus on what's going on with him and we can address this and fix it again, not knowing that that would, that time would never come. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, around that time too, you know, besides the sleep issues and the, those kinds of episodes and then noticing that he was, you know, more depressed, um, or very depressed, I should say. And he had, he was also very anxious. A lot of the time he started having some other kind of bizarre behavior that we couldn't quite figure out. And, and both you and I noticed, I think you noticed before me, but, um, you know, he worked, he traveled for work, but he also worked from home a lot and he worked with, um, paint, like a lot of, uh, he did a lot of like chemistry and, and paint testing and stuff for his company. And so he had a lot of supplies out in the garage and it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for him to go out in the garage quite frequently and like, and like do stuff for work. But the amount of times that he was going out into the garage, um, you know, starting kind of later that summer before he died was, was quite frequent. And I think you and I kind of started to pick up on it and, and both kind of questioned him at times, like, what are you doing out there? You know, um, why are you going out there all the time? It was just, and it was such a weird vibe too, like a weird. And he, and he, yeah, he kind of started having like this, like, oh, nothing, you know, I just work stuff or like he, he would kind of shove it off, but you could tell, like, it felt like he was hiding something and we weren't yeah. really sure what. And I remember, you know, later you talking about that, and, you know, that didn't you say you went out and like actually searched out there at one point because you were suspicious? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that like, I, again, uh, was dealing with some family issues where I had, you know, sibling that was in the middle of severe addiction. I, you know, in the back of my mind, know that he had had, you know, issues with depression when he was a teenager undiagnosed let's clarify that undiagnosed but that's probably the case um he you know he had he liked to you know have uh, cocktails and beverages um you know to unwind at the end of the day um and i wasn't naive to the fact that like his behavior seemed to me to be very kind of secretive and it was weird. And I was like, is he like, is he using something and is he hiding it? And so there were times where I would like try to sneak out there. And I swear to God, that guy had like super hearing because he would be at, like, we had this tandem garage. So like where there was like a workshop and that's where the boat was parked. And he always was there in this like same area. Um, and it didn't matter how quiet I was to sneak out after him. Literally like I go around the corner and he'd just be like, whatever. And it was just always weird. And I'd be like, what are you doing? And he always had some sort of thing that he was like working on or doing, but it just, I knew something was off and it didn't make sense to me. And Spidey so senses were tingling like, like this, something he's doing is not what he says it is. You he, know? Yeah, I just, I could tell, I felt like he was hiding something. And um, yeah, so there were a couple times because I always would find him kind of in that area of the garage. I went and started looking through the garage being like, okay, I'm not dumb. Like, I I know how this works. 
and trying to figure out what is it that he has out here because I was concerned that there was something going on. Now I'll, you know, say, even though we're not to that part yet, that when we did figure out what was going on, I, it was not expecting what it actually was. Um, Well, and on that point, I would say, okay, continue. Sure. Oh, I was just going to say too. I mean, um, I mean, we can get into that the next episode actually. So, yeah. Um, and on that point, you know, I think all of this really came to a head when we figured out exactly what was going on with him beyond there was, cause obviously there was more than just the depression and the anxiety. There was more than just the sleep issues and the strange behavior. Um, and it all kind of came to a head one night when I, you had gone to bed and I, you know, I had my area down in the basement, um, but my room was upstairs. And so I was getting ready. Your little man cave. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I came upstairs and dad was like sitting on the couch watching a movie or something, watching TV. I don't remember exactly what, but I went to go say goodnight. I was sleeping. Yeah. I went to go say goodnight to him. And he, uh, he was in one of those episodes again where he was, slurring his words and extra tired and just kind of like off something was off and I was trying to have a conversation with him and you know at this point these episodes had become so frequent that I was like even I was frustrated with it you know where um where I was annoyed that he was not doing anything to to solve this issue because it was an issue that had become so prevalent in our family um, that that it was almost every night at this point that he was in this state where I was like, go to bed, you're tired, mm-hmm. you're really annoying, or you know, you're being irritable or whatever. And um, and so I confronted him and, and I was like, I was like, listen. And, well just a side note too, I mean you gotta remember you have a lot more understanding now at 23 about a lot of these things like depression, anxiety, you've worked in the ER. Um, you've obviously been through something super traumatic, you know, um, et cetera, but you didn't have that exposure prior to that, like really a ton. And so you didn't really even the stuff that I knew that was going on behind the scenes, like the fact that I think he was really depressed and like the anxiety was probably worse than he had. And, you know, something was off and like it had suspicions about what it might be. I knew something I was sharing. I knew something was was off, but I wasn't, I wasn't um, as in tune with it as you were. And, and like, I also was very disconnected because I was very involved in my own, my own stuff that I had going on as a teenager should be. So like, I knew something was wrong with him. I knew that he was acting differently and he was having more of these episodes. And I knew that, you know, he was having some sort of issue, but I wasn't really that privy to it. Yeah. And I wasn't sharing it with you on purpose because again, you're a kid. It's not your job to know all the problems that might be going on, whether it was like in our relationship or, you know, that he's struggling with something that we're trying to figure out. Like that was not, it, it wasn't an issue that you needed to know about right so you also had no reason to to even suspect any of these things yeah i had none of the background knowledge other than 
he I, I knew that he had some sort of sleep issue and I knew he had these episodes and I knew he was have he had like some weird behavior and that, you know, and that was about it. That's all I noticed. But the sleep issues were becoming so prevalent that, you know, I was getting really annoyed with him when he was in those episodes because at that, you know, when he was acting like that, he wasn't my dad. He didn't act like the Eric that I knew. He didn't act like the dad that I knew. And he he was basically a completely different person when he would enter those those quote unquote sleep episodes. Um, and so I confronted him and I was like, you know, because at this point he still was refusing to get checked out with it. And I said, you know, I remember talking to sitting down um, and, and talking to him and being like, being very upfront with him and saying like, you know, I, you're tired again. You're having one of these episodes and I know you think that we're making this up, but we're not. And it is affecting our family, you know, when you have these episodes and they're becoming more frequent and something is wrong. And I literally told him, you are not my dad when you act like this. When you have these episodes, you don't act like my dad. You are a completely different person. I need you. I'm asking you to go get checked out so we can fix this or we can do something about it because something's wrong and it keeps happening and it's getting more frequent. And I don't like, I can't put up with you when you're in the state because you either get irritable and get on everybody's case or you get really annoying or, you know, you're not my dad when you're like this. And he, you know, he kept saying like, no, I can fix it. Like, like, it's not that big of a deal. I know what's going on. And I was like, what do you, like, what do you mean you can fix it? Like, you don't even know what's going on. You refuse to go to the doctor. You refuse to, to mm-hmm. get a sleep study or to, to figure out what this is. And in my brain, I'm still thinking that most of this is related or all of this is related to his sleep. And he, he kept telling me like, no, I can fix it. I know what's happening. And I was like, if you know what's going on, then what is it? Like, tell me. And he, you know, took a moment and he took a big sigh. And, you know, I sat on the floor and he said, I drink a lot. Hey, you know how this works. If you like this episode or just like us in general, you can find us at It's Going Podcast on all the things. Don't forget to check out the links in the description. And thanks for hanging out with us.